We are delighted to be joined by the Arizona Christian University Professor and the Director of Research at the Cultural Research Centre at ACU, Dr. George Barner. Hello and welcome to Expositive Word, George. Uh, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. You are often referred to as the most quoted man in Christianity today. How did this come to be? <laughs> Somebody <laughs> lost their mind. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the marketing adage that there is such a thing as a first mover advantage, which means that the first person into a particular space in the marketplace has an advantage over everybody else. Yeah. And about 40 years ago, when I started the Barna Research Group, really nobody was doing kind of advanced marketing research for Christian ministries, for churches, in the way that, that we started to do. The Gallup poll had been asking questions about people's faith for years, so there were some basic cornerstones that had been laid, but we were really treating it more like a service in the marketplace, and so to do that, you had to have good marketing intelligence. Who are the people you're trying to serve? What are their needs? What's your image? Uh, how could you improve your reputation? How do you expand your market reach? All those kinds of things, which are common in marketing research, hadn't really been done for ministries. So I think that's really the thing that kind of got me a platform in the first place. And, you know, a lot of people started quoting what we were doing because we were the only ones doing it for so many years. And even now, there are a lot of things that I do that nobody else is doing. So uh, you know, through no fault of my own, I wind up getting quoted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Before we get stuck into some of your recent studies at the Research Centre, tell us a little bit about yourself, George. Well, I uh, was born in New York City, grew up in that area of the country. I uh, got my education in the Northeast. I'm an introvert, so um, I don't spend a lot of time with people unless I have to. Yeah. <laughs> but I get to know them through numbers. Uh, very early on in my life, I realized that numbers kind of talk to me uh, more effectively than many people did. Yeah. And it was, I guess, when I was probably five, six, seven years old, in the States, we have a thing called baseball cards. Baseball was the national sport, still is, supposedly. And uh, on each card, it would have on one side the picture of the player and on the back, it would have all their career statistics. And I got those things when I was a kid and I just was mesmerized by all these numbers. Yeah. And, you know, the more cards I got, the more exciting it became. And, and through that initial introduction to numbers telling a story and giving me a history of an individual and a team and a sport, I think that's really what got me into all of this when I was in, uh, college, I got involved in politics, became a pollster for various people running for political office. Uh, since then, I've worked on four presidential campaigns, you know. So, I mean, all of that has evolved over the course of time. Um, you know, and, and you asked me to tell you something about myself. I love music. I love sports. And I love England and Australia. Those are my favorite places to visit. So... Keep your eyes open. I may be there one of these days. <laughs> we will. I just need to translate as well, because a few minutes ago, you, you mentioned baseball. Basically, for the UK fans, that's basically cricket. <laughs> <laughs> well, a version of it, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how did you become a Christian then, George? Um, 
uh, when I went to get married, I, I'd been dating the same woman for about seven years. And we went to get married. We were Catholic at the time. And the Catholic Church had a requirement that you go through a counseling uh, series of sessions. So we did that. And at the end, we were supposed to meet with the priest to determine whether or not they thought we were qualified to get married. And uh, it was that meeting with the priest that became rather confrontational because of what he was suggesting uh, theologically to me. And that kind of sent my wife and I on a search for God. It was like a trigger that said, well, I, I can't just do what he's told me to do because I don't buy it, but I've got to replace it with something else. So let's go out, let's figure out if God is real, let's figure out if his Jesus character is real and what difference it makes. Let's figure out what role the Bible might play, all these things. We wound up going to a very small church that was meeting in a school gymnasium where the pastor did something we'd never seen done before, even though we'd been going to the Catholic church all our life. And that was, he opened up the Bible and he took a passage and he read it verbatim. Then he talked about what it meant. Then he went back, read another passage verbatim, went back and talked about what that meant. We'd never seen this done before. Yeah. And, and I remember driving home after that service and saying to my wife, man, I don't know if anybody else has ever thought of doing that, but if not, that's really marketable. We ought to see if we can take it and run with it. <laughs> I mean, how stupid, you know, they, people have been doing that for 600 years, but I'd never seen it. So, I mean, that was a game changer for me, realizing that the Bible can be relevant to my life. And then in spending more time with the pastor, you know, he challenged me to read the Bible and to pray to God and to ask God to reveal himself to me in very real ways. And God did. And, and, you know, it's been great ever since. Yeah. You mentioned where your love of numbers come from. But how did you get into the field of research? Really, it was politics that kind of pulled me into that. Uh, working for, first of all, as a campaign manager. And while managing these campaigns for people who were running for public offices, I realized I don't really like all the things I have to do as a campaign manager. But there were two things that I loved doing. One was the polling and the other was speech writing based on what we learned from the polls. And so I went back to grad school and picked up uh, you know, some uh, advanced degrees in research and then got into the market research field. And while I was working for uh, one of the largest market research companies in America, a client came in that was a Christian advertising agency. They worked for a lot of different ministries and they wanted to do some research being the only Christian in that large company, I got assigned the project and it kind of opened my mind to the possibility of using these skills and abilities to help advance the kingdom of God. So that kind of led to me working for that agency, moving to Chicago to do that, and then eventually moving back to LA from Chicago to open the Barna Group, Barna Research Group to uh, start doing research for ministries. Yeah. What is the temperature of Christianity today in the, U in the USA? Well, you could probably best describe it as lukewarm, kind of like the uh, Revelation 3 description of the Church of Laodicea, where, you know, the Lord described Laod the Laodicean church as lukewarm. He said he'd spit it out of his mouth. And, and I think that's kind of the, the situation of the church in America today. Most people have some kind of faith. Very few people are driven by their faith even fewer are driven by a biblical Christian faith. 
And so whether we're looking at the set of beliefs or the behaviors related to those beliefs, the reality is we're not very committed. We are not people of reflection in America. We're people of action. And so we don't like to sit down and really think about what we read, think about what we've been taught, think about what we're hearing from others, whether it's friends, family, pastors, whoever. We'll get a little bit of information and that's enough to get us out of the chair and get us going. We want to do something. We want to accomplish stuff. And the consequence of that is that our faith is maybe an inch deep in America and it's getting less deep as time goes on. Explain to us what it means to live in a postmodern world. Well, uh, you know, postmodernism has a lot of elements to it. I think one of the key factors, particularly if we're going to talk about faith, is postmodernism would say there's no absolute moral truth. You are your own truth. You dictate truth for your life. Nobody can tell you what the truth should be for you. And the consequence of that is when you then look at things like morality, understanding right from wrong, the idea in postmodernism, well, nobody can tell you what's right for you. Only you know that. And, you know, you can't judge others and they can't judge you. You have to figure it out for yourself and get along with it. And so there's that kind of self-determination that comes out of postmodernism that says I really shouldn't be and can't be shaped by any kind of external truth values or principles. So if you believe in the Bible, I'm happy for you, but don't expect me to believe it because that's not my basis. That's not my foundation of truth. Uh, we find also that postmodernism is a, a set of beliefs, a worldview that says that your happiness is of, of prime importance. And the way that you're going to be happy, the way that you're going to find yourself, you're going to experience your real purpose in life is by having good relationships with people who understand you, who you can trust, and by having meaningful experiences that help add not only flavor to your life, but that also explain the meaning of reality to you through that kind of hands-on experience. So, you know... Uh, postmodernism is also one of these worldviews that is real big on the idea of justice. But in saying that, justice is kind of determined through the ends justifies the means. You feel what justice should be, and then you do whatever you must do to feel right about the situation by doing the things that bring about the outcomes that you believe in your heart personally to be right, regardless of what the culture says, regardless of what a church says, it's all about you. Yeah. How does your research work? Where do you find the people that you poll and how reliable are the results? Well, there are two primary types of data collection that we might do. One would be through telephone surveys. That's getting harder and harder as people give up their you know, hard lines, uh, as they're called, you know, a desk phone, and they've traded it in for, for a mobile phone. Yeah. And so doing research via mobile telephones is exceedingly difficult, much more costly, takes a lot more time, and your response rates are lower, which means the reliability of the research is also diminished. 
The other way that we collect data sometimes is through online surveys. But while you don't have the same cost issues there, you do have the same response rate issues where you can email to a lot of people, but very few are going to respond. And, you know, a rule of thumb in research is the lower your response rate, the less reliable the information that you collect. So we have all kinds of issues in the research field right now. You can see them being played out in the 2020 political election that we just concluded. Well, it's not actually concluded, but the voting, uh, we think, has been concluded. And, uh, you know, the polling that led up to that was, in many cases, not very reliable. There are a lot of different reasons for that, but sampling is one of those, low response rates is one of those. Uh, there are some other more nefarious reasons, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a time where we're trying to develop new methods of how to communicate effectively with the general public so that we can collect information that is reliable. And that's something that's still in process. We don't have the answers yeah. to that yet. Yeah. In general, when you finally get hold of someone to actually pick up a landline, how cooperative are people in providing information for your studies, George? Well, generally speaking, not very, but uh, we've learned a number of different techniques that help to overcome the fears that people have, which are yeah. the reasons why they won't participate in surveys. You know, they don't know who we are. They don't know what we're going to do with that information. They don't know if they can trust us. They don't know what's going to happen to them as a result of being open and honest with somebody they don't know. Yeah. So we, we have different things that we try to do before we contact them, during the course of the contact, afterwards to try to diffuse those concerns that they have. Uh, and, and granted, I understand their fears. There are a lot of companies that use surveys as a way to get in the door for their own agenda. You know, those of us who are trying to do surveys simply to keep the public and our leaders informed about what people are thinking and experiencing and desiring, we're at a major disadvantage yeah. because, you know, we're being pushed out of the way by people who have an unfortunate agenda. Yeah. How do you maintain the integrity of your surveys? There are a lot of different things that we do. One of those is pre-testing. And so when we put together a questionnaire, we will test it to make sure that it doesn't take too long, that the words communicate the same thing to different types of people, that the sequencing of the questions makes logical sense, uh, to make sure that we're actually measuring what we think we're measuring through those questions. Mm -hmm. uh, the sampling, that is who we invite to participate in the survey, the sample has to be properly developed. And so we always try to get something that's representative. That's getting harder and harder these days. But, you know, if you put enough time and energy and money into it, you can typically figure out how can I get a, a good understanding of all the people in this universe of people that I want to survey, whether it's likely voters or women with children or people who watch a television program of interest, whatever the, the purpose of the survey may be, you have to find a sample of those people. It's tough, but, but it's possible to do. And, and one of the things that I always tell my students, you know, when you're designing surveys, one of the important things is your instincts. 
it, it, your survey, your process with the survey has to pass the smell test, I call it. Yeah. You know, if, if you do something and, I don't know, it just doesn't yeah. smell right. There's something right. off here. Yeah. You know, you better go back and, and reevaluate it because more often than not, you were right. There's something that's wrong and, and you need to fix it. And then at the end, analytically, I always try to find other people who have looked at the same topic that I'm researching to find out what kind of answers they've gotten to their questions. Now, they may not be identical questions, so the answers won't be identical, but I want to make sure I'm in the same neighborhood. If I'm not, again, there's a smell issue here. Yeah, brilliant. Your studies have shown that the American church is changing radically and rapidly. Tell us about that, George. Well, yeah, there are a lot of things that are going on. One has to do with the fact that most American churches, and uh, I suspect based on the research done by Peter Brierley in England, uh, you know, a good friend of mine, that uh, the same thing is true in England and also in Australia, where I've got some friends doing research. Most of our churches are not actually led by leaders. They're led by teachers, people who would say to us, they do say to us in the surveys, they don't believe that God has called them and gifted them to lead. He's called them and gifted them to teach. Well, there's a massive difference between being a leader and a teacher. But the way that the church, the local church model exists you kind of have to pretend to be a leader in order to get the platform to do the teaching. Mm -hmm. So in most churches, we're really suffering from a deficit of leadership. And one of the ways that we see that happening, and by the way, I can put numbers to all this if you want, but you know, one of the ways that we see that impacting ministry is that most churches try to evaluate whether or not they're effective in ministry. And that's a good thing because you get what you measure. It's important that you measure, but you get what you measure. And the problem is in America, I don't know about, you know, Great Britain or Australia, but I know in the U.S. there are five primary factors that pastors look at to determine for themselves whether or not they're effective in ministry. They look at how many people have shown up, how much money they raise, how many programs they offer, how many staff people they've hired, and how much square footage they've built out. And, and my response to that is, I'm glad you're measuring the stuff, but you get what you measure. You measure the wrong stuff. You're going to get the wrong stuff. And remember, Jesus didn't die for any of those five things that you're measuring. Yeah. So we're measuring the wrong stuff in America. And when you look at our churches, focusing on those things, how many people can we attract? What do you have to do to attract people? Make sure you don't tick them off. You don't want to get them upset because they won't come back. Yeah. Well, you know what? Jesus taught some things that are going to get people upset. Yeah. And so we have to be willing to tell the truth to people who may not want to hear the truth yeah. and to recognize the consequence of that may be they don't come back. They don't give us money. They don't go in our programs. They don't help us build out more square footage. So be it. Yeah. We have to stand on God's truth. Yeah. And that's not happening in the church in America. As I've done content analysis studies of preaching in America, one of the things that I've discovered is that we don't preach very much on things like uh, sin. We don't preach on the relevant cultural issues. Why? Because they're controversial. They might raise conflict with certain people. Uh, we don't spend much time talking about how do we make this real in our lives. And so we've got some, some major, major issues in the American church that we really have to address. And 
at, at the moment, I'm, I'm sad to say, it doesn't look like we're going to address it. The other big issue, of course, that we're going to have to deal with in a, in a month or two is once many of the lockdown restrictions are removed because of the COVID virus, what's going to happen is that when local churches reopen, I'm estimating based on our current research that somewhere between a third to a half of the people who had been regularly attending before COVID hit are no longer going to attend church wow. in a physical setting. So yeah, we've really got to rethink how do we rebuild the Christian faith in America. And are you seeing that across all denominations or is there certain denominations that that research has taken place? Across all of them. Really? Yeah. yeah. So when and what have you seen happen over the years that have influenced this shift? Well, honestly, the thing that, that I tell pastors we've got to be cognizant of is that the culture is influencing the church more than the church is influencing the culture. And the way that's happening, I think, based on a study I did of trying to figure out what influences us to think what we think and do what we do, we discovered that the most potent influences in American society are typically the arts and entertainment media. So the things that people are exposed to in terms of music, in terms of television, in terms of books and uh, movies and video games, all of these kinds of media that we tend to think of as being entertainment, but primarily they're about the development of a worldview. Mm -hmm. They're telling us what truth is. They're showing us or explaining to us what reality is. They're giving us a picture of ourselves, who we could be if we believe these things and behave these ways. And that's been happening now to a huge extent for over 40 years. And the incremental impact of that month after month after month on a person's mind and heart and life is overwhelming. And then we look at the government. The government has a significant influence too. In America, we've got the, this crazy expression, you can't legislate morality. When in point of fact, that's the only reason we have legislation. That's what laws do. Yeah. They explain to us morality. Morality only means knowing the difference between right and wrong. And that's what the law tells us. You do something wrong, we're going to punish you. You do something right, we'll reward you with freedom or whatever else it may be as a result of your decision. Yeah. And so the government has a huge impact on people's worldview. Really, the whole game, the, the whole thing is about worldview. Yeah. Because everybody has a worldview. Your worldview is your mental and emotional and spiritual filter that helps you to make every decision you make. Yeah. And so if you base your worldview on Marxist principles, postmodern principles, secular humanist principles, modern mystical principles, you're going to think and live differently than if you base most of your choices on a biblical worldview. But in America, we've only got 6% of adults who have a primarily biblical worldview, a predominantly biblical worldview. Yeah. That's, that's been cut in half in the last 20 years, and it's going in the wrong direction. So that really is the big uh, issue that we've got before us. Yeah. Out of all the research you've been involved with over the years, George, what have been some of your most surprising findings? Well, there have been a lot of them. I, I think 
one of them was finding that only 6% of adults in America have a biblical worldview. Uh, a second one related to that was discovering that a person's worldview begins developing somewhere around 15 to 18 months of age and is almost fully formed by 13 years of age. And yet when you look at churches, where do we put most of our energy, effort, and resources? Into adults. It's too late. Their worldview has already been formed. And if you want to reform it, it's going to take an extraordinary amount of resources to undo what they've already embraced, who they are, basically. That's become their identity. And you've got to change that completely. That's very difficult to do. Another uh, big deal that I found recently is that even evangelical churches in the United States, evangelical churches defined as churches that would say the Bible is God's truth. It's inerrant. We need to incorporate it into how we live, into what we think and believe, into who we become. What we're finding is that uh, about four out of 10 people who attend evangelical churches don't believe the Bible is God's trustworthy word. It's reliable for our lives. It's accurate in what it teaches. Four out of 10 in evangelical churches. Now, I expect lower numbers and find them in other types of churches in our country. But when you find that in really the last bastion of churches that are saying God's word is truth, God's word is reliable, God's word is relevant, God's word should be the authority of your life, when they're losing it, we're really losing the battle. Yeah. You've already touched on where you feel that the the momentum is heading, George. Are we in a unique place when you look at history or have we been here before? I I suspect that we've been here before. We haven't had the same kind of measurement tools and metrics, but I think if you read history before they rewrite it, that what we find is that secular humanism has been around for centuries and centuries. It's looked different in different cultures, but that mentality, that worldview has been here before. Marxism has been around for a long time. It existed before Marx and Lenin put words to it. It just had different names and different looks, but it's been around. Uh, You know, modern mysticism. Well, before modern mysticism, there was pre-modern mysticism. So, I mean, these things have always been part of our world, and we've always had the opportunity to make a choice about who are we going to trust? What are we going to believe? Who do we think we have been called and created to be? And so we face the same challenges today. Maybe they're more intense. Maybe they're characterized a little bit differently. But yeah, I mean, the war for the human mind, heart, and soul has been going on since Adam and Eve. So, you know, as Ecclesiastes would say, nothing is new under the sun. Yeah. There was a high expectation that SageCons were going to play an important role within the American election. Just explain to us what a SageCon is and what was the expectation and what actually happened? Well, SageCons are kind of a subset of the Christian population in America. They represent 8, 10, 12% of that population. The name itself is an acronym that stands for Spiritually Active, Governance Engaged, Conservative, Christians. So in other words, these are people who first and foremost see themselves as disciples of Jesus Christ. And because of that, they embrace the Bible as the truth for their life. And one of the principles that they take from that scripture, 
the scriptures, is that you're supposed to influence every dimension of life that you can for the kingdom of God. And so they look at the political arena, the government arena. And while most churches in America say, hands off, that's dirty stuff, that's controversial, that's something we don't want to deal with. These are people who say, but wait a minute, it influences people's lives. It makes a difference in what people think about God, how they live their lives for or against or without God. So we need to influence the governmental sphere as well. And so these are people that are active in that sphere, trying to take biblical principles into it. And uh, they have a conservative point of view, uh, meaning that they tend to go back to the Bible for their understanding of what is truth, what is morality, how does that relate to what the government might call us to do or restrict us to do or not do. Uh, what we know is that that's a group that overwhelmingly in the 2016 election voted for Donald Trump, even though so many of them were never Trumpers before. They didn't want him. They didn't like him. They didn't understand him. And yet when they looked at either him or Hillary Clinton, they said, we really don't have a choice. And at least he's saying some of the things that we believe in. She's not. We've got to vote for him. 93% of them voted for Donald Trump in the 2016 election. In the 2020 election that just finished, I'm still waiting for the final data. I get it in about two days, so you're a little premature. But, <laughs> but what I see from the marginals, the, uh, the early returns, is that over 90% of Sage Cons voted in this election. Again, enormously high turnout. And over 90% of them voted for Mr. Trump instead of Mr. Biden. Uh, for a number of different reasons, but uh, they play a very significant role. They're probably the backbone of the conservative movement in Christian uh, in America. Yeah, sure. How accurate were the polls beforehand, and what results surprised you the most? Uh, the polls in this election were not really very accurate, and it's because there was a major shift in thinking on the part of those who were paying for the polls this time. Uh, those being the big media outfits, you know, the television networks, newspapers, radio networks. Uh, and, and they decided, because most of them were very clearly and unabashedly supporting Joe Biden, they decided they were going to use the polls as a tool to try to get the electorate to support Mr. Biden. Prior to 2020, polls have been thought of as an objective standard where we tried to measure what does the population feel, why, and what difference does it make? But in this particular election, the polls were weaponized by the left, and that really changed uh, the game in significant ways. One of the things when you use polls to try to persuade people that things are a certain way when really they're not, is you suppress turnout, voter turnout, because people think, ah, oh, it's a foregone conclusion. We already know who's gonna vote. Why should I vote for my guy? He's gonna lose anyway. And it also suppresses fundraising. Why would I give my hard-earned money to a candidate who apparently is going to lose by a big margin? So those polls really did distort the election. Yeah. What is next for you personally and also the research center? Well, with the research center, the cultural research center, we do two things. We track worldview in America, and then we also look at the different dimensions of cultural influence and try to understand what's going on in education, what's going on in government, what's going on with family, what's going on with churches, you know, what's going on with business and commerce. 
what's going on with the arts and entertainment industry, what's going on in terms of news and information. Those are the seven dominant points of influence in our culture. And so we track what's happening in those things and try to inform our leaders about what's happening so they can make better decisions. Personally, uh, 2021, prayerfully, hopefully, is going to be a year of writing. I, I've got uh, three books scheduled, so I'll be working on those as well as all the worldview research. Uh, so yeah, it looks to be a, a fun year for me. Yeah, good. George, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, well, the best way would be to go to the website at culturalresearchcenter.com or they could go to georgebarna.com. A uh, lot of research in both of those places and uh, ways to get in touch with me. And uh, I hope they do. We try to make as much research available to people for free as possible so that they can be informed and they can make better decisions as well. Brilliant. George, it's been a fascinating uh, conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. It's been fun. I appreciate Brilliant. it. Thank you. Mm -hmm.